Our passage today is from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, and I will be reading from the ESV. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone for whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You may be seated. Thank you to God. Thank you, Hackneys. You know, as Christians are people of the light, the four of you always give off the light of Christ. We thank God for you. <clears throat> On the eve of one of the great battles of history, a man named Lord Nelson sent out a famous signal. This is the British Royal Navy facing off against Napoleon's French fleet. And on the eve of that battle of Trafalgar, Lord Nelson sends out these famous words, England expects that every man will do his duty. And Nelson, having given his very life in that battle, as the British would go on to win, Napoleon would be defeated. And as he lay dying, he said, thank God I did my duty. Now that word duty, we must say, for many generations in America, certainly in the West, that this would have been a very normal thing to talk about, uh, the kinds of obligations and responsibilities you take upon yourself uh, when you enter into a, a certain role or a relationship. But I fear, uh, because of our kind of social malaise, that uh, we have lost sight of what it means to be responsible and have obligations because of our relationships. Now, in the Christian life, I will say I don't think duty is the primary motivator for acting. Um, that we say, well, it feels a bit heavy-handed, you know, just kind of do it. Really, I'd say the primary motivator in the Christian life is love or love and grace. But out of that, the grace that has been shown us come, I think, sets of duties. And Jesus introduces us to that category, doesn't he? In verse 10, we have only done what was our duty. And if you think of duty surrounding roles and relations, so if you're in the British Royal Navy, what that means is I signed up for the military. By virtue of being in the military, I've taken it upon myself to do certain things uh, in this office, and because I'm in this with other uh, people, that I have obligations to them. Now you think of the Christian life, that I've been called to the Lord Jesus, that I acknowledge Jesus as king by virtue of being a disciple of Christ, that there are expectations that come upon me in my conduct, and certainly as I've been called, not just as an individual, yes, called as an ind individual, but not just as an individual, I've been called into the people of God. 
uh, this long stream of men and women going back all the way to the beginning of time. And because of that, I've been called to God in Christ and to be with the people of God that there are responsibilities and obligations and duties of the calling that I have. And I think that's a good way of framing these 10 verses today. As Jesus says, what does it mean to do our Christian duty? And we'll look at three. The, three, the text breaks up nicely, doesn't it, into three sections. And so we'll look at these uh, three, not just, uh, you know, say, ideas, but really today breaking down to three very practical applications, three things that the church family does among one another. So first we'll notice, <laughs> verses 1 to 4, Jesus anticipates that the church is an imperfect place. And some of us, you've been in church a long time, that doesn't come as a surprise to you, but I do find people that they seem to always be a little bit caught off guard that uh, Christians, because of our sin nature, that we don't always get it right. Uh, that no doubt we're tempted. You see Jesus starts there, that there's temptation to sin. We have to remember Jesus understood what it meant to be tempted, that temptation is different from sin. Uh, Jesus was tempted in every way. Normal human beings are tempted, but he stopped from transgressing. Uh, so he, get, he understands uh, the predicament we're, that we're in, but because we're fallen, that he's the only sin, sinless one, that he knows that even in a church family, that there will be transgression, that we're going to sin against one another. You see it right there in verse 3, right? He's saying, if, if your brother sins, the word brother means somebody in the assembly, an, another person who's professing Christ, a brother or sister, uh, this is what you do, he's saying, when they sin against you. So the church is an imperfect place. So you say, well, what's the point then? The common denominator in sinful activity isn't the institution itself. It's because we're all human and we all tend to look out for ourselves rather than caring about other people and thinking about the Lord. But Jesus qualifies this with two, I think, really important things that uh, give the church, hopefully, a great opportunity uh, for the times in which we live. Firstly, Jesus says, I should be way more concerned about my own contribution to the problems in the world rather than I go around policing other people. That's what he's saying. He says, you know, there's going, to be, there's going to be times where the people of God don't get it right. But woe to the person who causes that transgression, either by bad example, you know, and say, this is very haunting, right? Those of us that go around say, well, we're, we're Christ followers, we're Christ followers, and then we just go out and do our own thing, and we bring blasphemy, right? We cause reason for others to talk bad about our God, say something like that, or more deliberately, you know, just telling somebody uh, something that's outside the will of God. So woe to the person who causes, who initiates kind of unchecked uh, sinfulness within the people of God. Now, here's where we have to take a moment just to see the, the graphic illustration that Jesus gives. And I'm just saying what the Bible says. Take a look at verse 2. For the person who professes to be a Christian, let's say, and has no intention of really following the Lord Jesus, who actually doesn't think about what it means to, to be a real disciple and just causes others to sin, it's better for that person to have a millstone around his neck and be thrown to the bottom of the sea. You ever seen a millstone? Millstones are giant, you know, big, huge rock. There's a hole in the middle, you know, they used it to grind things. And I just picture myself there, you know, tomorrow night I'll be out with Phil Talmadge out on Lake Erie looking for walleye, and I'm trying to picture there's a big stone, and around that stone there's a rope going right through, and the other side of that rope's around my neck. And that millstone's going to be thrown over the boat. Guess what? Not, 
oh, I think I'll, you know, float around for a few minutes, you know, feet down and try to, you know, say, nope, you know what's happening? My head straight to the bottom. Pretty graphic, pretty graphic thing. So Jesus here is saying, fellas, disciples, when you're among one another, there's going to be transgression. We're not always going to get it right because the sin nature is still at work. But be very cautious of your own conduct rather than policing all the others because this is serious business. It's the same thing when, he, when he's on about, he says, why am I so good at finding the speck in your eye when I ignore the plank at my own? So it's my job to police all of you instead of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a fallen and selfish man and I need to be very cautious about my conduct in my family and in my church family and only then do I have any right uh, you know, going forth a, a, as a pastor. This is said many times uh, in Scripture. There you see 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the church of God. In other words, don't just smear the name of Jesus, uh, but be very cautious about how you walk. This is what he means, I think, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Not saying, look at all these other people who are contributing to the problem. No, Austin, you're a deeply flawed person. In fact, you're a rebel against God. You love yourself more than you love anybody else. Boy, don't I need a savior. Lord, prevent me from causing these others to sin. That's, that's the posture Jesus would like us to have. Now, secondly, crucially, forgiveness is a character trait of Christ's followers. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, someone in your church, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. By the way, that there, you know, I, I read leadership books like you do. Do you notice how every single business leadership book, I, I pick, you know, I read it, and I say, I've read all this before in the New Testament. You know, you ever have that feeling? Kim Scott's Radical Candor. I'm like, I think Radical Candor is kind of unknowingly brought out of Luke 17. Uh, you know, go right to the person. Uh, talk to them, not about them. Comes right out of the Bible. So when, when somebody does us wrong, go right to them have it be an opportunity to make you closer to them and forgive them. Have you, I hope you've experienced that in your own, you know, your own family or with your group of friends, that when you're colliding with people often, it's a way of saying, when you're interacting with others regularly, as a church family ought to do, there's going to be infractions and slights and bad things said and things done and things left undone. However, when Christians forgive and move on, the social bond in that community becomes very strong. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When the brother sins, you go right to him, you talk to them, and then verse 4, right? And if he sins against you seven times in the day, seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, there's nothing... Uh, I don't think I'm not a numerologist you know there are numerologists biblical numerology I don't know about biblical numerology but the idea with seven is basically not so much if you're counting the infractions but but what Jesus is saying is it's a very disposition it's the attitude of the Christian to think in terms of forgiveness rather than revenge because we come into the world when we're hurt when we're sinned against when somebody slights us the visceral reaction, my fallen nature is, I'm going to get you back. And Jesus is saying, no, the, the reaction for the Christian is to forgive. I'm going to seek forgiveness. I'm going to treat it as an opportunity to build things stronger. So a summary, and I, I know there are a lot of qualifications. You're probably like, is he just leaving the forgiveness piece there? I, I get it. Some, some infractions are harder to forgive than others. 
Um, you know, we could say reconciliation is different. I think that's a, an important distinction, right? To forgive someone is not to harbor bitterness in your heart. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're right back to where you were, were before. Those kind of qualifications that are well worth discussing another time, left aside, what, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is no, as a church family, we are imperfect. We should be in each other's lives. Because we're born into uh, a selfish nature that that never completely is gone from us until we're glorified, what that means is there's got to be a way forward, and the way forward is to take our own sin more seriously than other people's sin and to be quick to forgive. Now here, when I talk about an opportunity, think about where we're at culturally. I, um, I brought along Douglas Murray. I, I, I'm finding more and more that non-Christian atheistic public intellectuals are very good conversation partners for the church. You know why? They can't, they can't disappoint us, right? <laughs> so Murray is an atheist. He is an observer of culture. He writes well. Listen to this. The consensus for centuries was that only God could forgive the ultimate sins. But on a day-to-day -day level, the Christian tradition, among others, also stressed the desirability, if not the necessity of forgiveness, even to the point of infinite forgiveness. And there's a footnote, guess what, to the Gospels, to what we're talking about today. As one of the consequences of the death of God, it's a term saying, well, let's get rid of God, this kind of old idea, let's, let's throw him out. Friedrich Nietzsche foresaw that people could find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, and shame, but would be without the means of redemption which the Christian religion also offered. Today, we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined, mainly because of social media, the tentacles of that, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it's a desirable quality compared to the endless cycle of fiery certainty and denunciation. Say, Murray is spot on, except that does say, you're right there. Uh, he's got no solution, but he's identified the problem so well. We have a culture of shaming. We look back, say, nobody's perfect. Reparations, pay, 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 pay. What breaks the cycle? Does anyone know a system where there might be forgiveness? <laughs> the Lord of glory. That there would be a people who say, I've been forgiven much, and because I'm forgiven much, I extend forgiveness, and that forgiveness means that there is a freshness to things. We live in a culture, think of that, a culture that says, you never forget, you make them pay. No way out. Christian theology, I need God's help. I've been forgiven much. Because I'm forgiven much, that pours out into my relationships. Think of the young people skyrocketing anxiety rates, I am not surprised at all. Because we live in a culture that says, if you mess up, you're going to pay. And you will keep paying. There is no redemption. Maria is spot on. How refreshing the Christian message. We're all great sinners. We've all done things that we're very embarrassed about. We've all done shameful things, but you know what? Isn't Jesus great? And by the blood of Christ, I'm redeemed. And you know what? We actually have this church. Yeah, we, we have our share of problems. But out of us flows forgiveness as a reflex. And I think that's a good way of thinking about the things we're talking about today as reflexes. You know, I'm, I'm at the point of life where I, um, I throw a lot of pitches to small males. Um, and you got to get pretty close to find this, 
the small strike zone. And so I'm up there, and sometimes, you know, it comes back, it comes back a lot faster than you throw it. Um, <laughs> and uh, sometimes I'm able to catch it. And I thought, well, that you don't think about that, right? You see a ball coming for your head, you kind of, you put the mitt up. And it's, it's a little bit like that with Christian habits, uh, Christian practices. So, well, that offended me. Wait a second, I don't take revenge. I'm a Christ follower. I, I seek forgiveness. Uh, my default is not my fallen nature. I'll get you back. You're going to pay. But to say, you know what, I'm a great offender, and I'm not going to treat these offenses as uh, taking myself too seriously or taking myself as great, but rather to seek the way out. And when a community does that, that's the, the bold heading, right? Attitudinal forgiveness transforms communities that if you really are in a place where you say, uh, we love each other, we seek forgiveness, we are more concerned about our own sin, our own contribution to problems than other people's contributions to problems, it, the church can be a very special place indeed. And I, I, again, every week I feel like I say we have a great opportunity with forgiveness, we, we do. So second point then, second duty uh, to, to forgive one. Secondly, to, to pray for increased faith. Verses five and six, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Um, I think that'd be a fun little question sometime. You know, you're with, you know, you're with people you love and trust. Say, what, what's the most powerful, what do you think the most powerful thing in the world is? You know, I was thinking about this. What would people say? I remember that famous line from Mao. Remember, he said, well, we need to teach every communist that the only power in the world comes from the barrel of the gun. Uh, you remember that violence? Violence is where the power is. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more positively, Sakharov, the Soviet dissident, he said, truth is the greatest weapon in the world. The truth is the most powerful thing, which I, I tend to think, think that way sometimes. But here Jesus is saying, actually, the most powerful thing, the most powerful thing in the life of the believer is a strong faith in Jesus. I wonder if you think that way. In this world, you know, we live with Michel Foucault and power dynamics and identity groups. What's the most powerful thing we have? Faith in Jesus. And faith always has an object. It's not just like, Austin, you got to kind of conjure up some kind of faith out of the ether. No, what he's saying is real faith in Jesus is the strongest force in the world. And then he uses hyperbole. You know, some take this literally moving a mulberry tree. I thought this would have been very handy at the workday yesterday, you know. <laughs> Uh, ye of little faith, you've got all those bushes taken care of. Um, he's not saying literally, you know, the idea of the Christian life is to go out and move trees. What, what he's saying is real faith, a deep and growing faith in Jesus will abide in the life of the believer and give them a kind of power to live that is unsurpassed by anything else. That it is the wellspring of hope and grace and courage. And if you're around Christians who've walked with the Lord a long time, I've, I hear them say this kind of thing all the time. You know, there was a time in my life that was just really hard. It was a dark season, and I was in a bad place, but my faith in Jesus got me through. It wasn't other things. It was a strong and abiding faith. And here you see the, the prayer of the apostles is a good one. Lord, in, increase our faith. Faith is on a continuum. There's weak faith to strong faith. And one of the things we do, one of the many things we do when we gather is that we collectively edify one another to an increased faith. To say, isn't Jesus great? Don't we all need him? Can we see once again who we are? Oh, yeah, you know, no, no problem. Look back at the last week. Isn't Jesus great? Let's lift him up. Yeah, aren't there, that's the truth. Look at this crazy world. Back to Jesus. That's the idea. 
So we pray, a great privilege of ours is to pray and to contribute to the increased faith of the faithful. It is a duty. It is a privilege. It is a duty. It is supplied by the power of God. And we gather for the different seasons of life to build each other up to the increasing of faith in the only appropriate object of faith, the completed work of Jesus on the cross. We forgive one another. We think about who we are before the Lord. We pray for increased faith. And lastly, we serve each other cheerfully. The last part from verse 7. Uh, I'll summarize this little story. I think the Pharisees, by the way, you say this is directed at the disciples, but you do wonder the Pharisees are intermingled here. It's not easy to say. They're just kind of on the periphery. So you, you feel he's talking to his disciples, but there's a real, I think, dig here at the Pharisees. And he tells a little story. He says, which one of you have a servant who's doing his normal duty as a servant, and then you treat them as if having completed that normal task as if it's something special, right? The verse 9, does, does he think the servant, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Basically, basically saying, do, do we expect when we live the normal Christian life to get some kind of pat on the back? Um, and again, this is the culture in which we live. This is your, your ninth place ribbon, right? Um, I, I, when I watch sports sometimes, I'm not, you know, the guy gets an eight-yard gain and the linebacker tackles him and he gets up and does a dance. And I'm thinking, you, you, did, you did, I guess, what you're supposed to do. Uh, why are you dancing? Um, should I dance after my sermon, you know? Uh, aren't you impressed? Um, yeah, I know you're... <laughs> so, you know, my old denomination had a, the uh, clergy couldn't dance, and I was always thankful for that. So come on, dance. <laughs> uh, free church doesn't have that stipulation. So here are these disciples, Pharisees, serving the Lord Jesus, and doing it, I think it relates back to 16 and verse 15, right? That they love to justify themselves. This is the fundamental, this in many ways is the fundamental divide in the human heart that we've talked about many, I think several weeks in a row, is the idea of self-righteousness is I don't, I don't need God. I'm a pretty good guy. Look at what a good person I am. And if you talk to people again, what do they say? Well, what do you think about God in heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I know a lot of people who are worse than me. Therefore, I'm fine. Instead of over here just saying, you know what? I've, <laughs> I've been in rebellion against God, and I've not always done what he should do, and I need a Savior. And so they're serving, and they're saying, aren't we swell? Look at us. You know, we're pretty good chaps. You owe us something. And what they're doing is they're putting God in their debt. God, you owe me something for being such a fine fellow. Jesus says, no. We are serving the Lord Jesus. Because he's called us, and he's established us, and he's given us everything. And out of that flow, we do these things. And that is, uh, I think, a good place to land today, is unlike secular moral philosophy, that duties aren't just, again, performed out of our own strength, but rather every Christian says it's because of what Jesus did for me. Forgiven people, those who are forgiven much, forgive much. If I've been forgiven much, I love much, and I forgive much. There's an appreciation for faith actually kicking in and working at the times in my life when I need it. So if you're not a Christian today and you think about these things, you know, uh, what to do in life and duties maybe, you're thinking, wow, what a, what a strange grouping of three. Forgive, pray for faith, serve. And I pray that as you would think about those this week, you'd say, you know what, that is a very refreshing alternative to the world in which we find ourselves. 
that hijacks portions of the Christian message but leaves us hanging dry, leaves us feeling lousy and shamed with no way out. Say, what about a people of God that would say, no, yeah, we don't always get it right, but our impulse, we pray, is to forgive, to pray and build each other up in faith and to serve out of what Jesus has done for us. Friends, I, for one, am exceedingly thankful for what God has done in my life and in many of your lives to call us to himself, to call us into an assembly, a place where we practice what the Lord Jesus taught. And I pray that as we continue down this path, that he would build his kingdom and his good time as he sees fit for the short time we have to be Providence Church. I will pray. Loving and gracious Father, I pray at this very moment we think of a time where we say, wow, that was really an embarrassing thing that I did. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that to my loved ones, to my parents, to my children, to my spouse. And when the culture constantly bombards us with payment, 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 may we see the ultimate payment in the person of Jesus that, that has been paid and we can turn to Jesus, be forgiven. And then as we are convinced of that reality in our lives, not only are we broken free of these um, very sad and dark things of a fallen world, but we're set on our way and that we too in, in a church family would be those who would be very quick to forgive, the reflex of forgiving, not vengeance, forgiveness, that we would practice what the Lord Jesus taught, go right to the person, uh, seek seek restoration for the sake of the greater good. And, and Lord, as we do that, we have every anticipation that you will bind us together in real loving relationships, that forgiveness would bind us together. Lord, that we, we, we would be a people that when we come on a, on a Sunday morning, it's not for information. Uh, that would be such a sad thing to say, here's another 30-minute lecture, but to say, no, we we're actually building each other up in the most powerful thing in the world, faith in Jesus. Isn't he great? Look at how sufficient he is. Look at what he's done for me. He'll do that for you too. That kind of posture. And Lord, help us to serve, not in an effort towards self-justification. Aren't I great? but rather to say, Lord, it is a privilege to serve you. Thank you for serving us, washing your disciples' feet, uh, the self-abasement of the cross, and that we would see that, that we would be cheerful servants. And Lord, as we would do and be on point for what you want us to do, that those in the assembly with a weak faith would be, their faith would increase, and maybe, Lord, those who don't know Jesus in a personal way should say, what, I, I had it wrong about those Christians. I thought they were policemen, but in fact, what they are, is a community striving to forgive, to pray, to serve, based on what you have done for them. May that be true for Christ's sake. Amen.